is Earth Files, the award-winning news site with the latest updates in science, environment, and real X-Files. Podcasting in-depth reports beyond the 6 o'clock news by Emmy Award-winning journalist Linda Moulton Howe. During Japan's air attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, on December 7, 1941, Second Lieutenant George A. Whiteman got his P-40 Warhawk into the air, but was hit by enemy fire and became the first American military man to die in World War II aerial combat. Four years later, on August 6, 1945, another pilot, Colonel Paul Tibbetts, dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, from his B-29 Enola Gay. Colonel Tibbetts was in the 509th Composite Group based at Roswell Army Airfield in Roswell, New Mexico, near the White Sands Proving Ground. The 509th had one mission, drop atomic bombs on Japan, and a second was dropped August 9, 1945, on Nagasaki. The 509th Bombardment Wing became part of the U.S. 8th Air Force in November 1947, evolved through many other air divisions, and today is part of the Global Strike Command in the U.S. 8th Air Force, now based at Whiteman Air Force Base southeast of Kansas City, Missouri. The Whiteman name honors that Pearl Harbor pilot George Whiteman, the first U.S. pilot to die in World War II. The modern 509th Bomber Wing operates the B-2 Spirit Stealth Bomber out of Whiteman Air Force Base, where a recent July 2009 inspection by the U.S. Air Force Audit Agency found that the 509th Bomber Wing was not adequately securing its nuclear weapons storage areas at Whiteman Air Force Base. So new, more rigorous security measures followed. But the irony is that back in the fall of 1984 at Whiteman Air Force Base, a large, black, silent aerial disc apparently had total access to the nuclear weapons storage areas with a thin beam of light. One of the U.S. Air Force security men who watched that big UFO emit a reddish-blue beam, no wider than a pencil, down onto the dome-shaped nuclear weapons storage facilities was Airman First Class Dale Hogan. Dale was born and raised in Florida 47 years ago, His father was in the U.S. Air Force. On August 10, 1982, at age 19, Dale enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. Like most new recruits, he was sent to Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, for basic military security training, followed by more extensive training and certificates in rocket launches, M60 and M203 artillery, and air base ground defense. By late 1983, Airman Hogan was assigned to Bravo Flight Security at Whiteman Air Force Base, Missouri. And about a year after that, in the fall of 1984, Dale was working swing and midnight shifts at the Whiteman Air Force Base Nuclear Weapons Storage Facility. With Dale Hogan was Senior Airman John Paul George, who Dale calls simply George. At Whiteman Air Force Base in 1984, nuclear warheads were stored in two dome-shaped igloos called 4018 and 4020. One shift after midnight in September or October 1984, 
Airman Hogan and George were having trouble keeping their Jeep going. The engine kept cutting out. The radios were also full of static. Bravo Flight's shift commander told them to park the Jeep, so they pulled up in front of Nuclear Weapons Igloo 4018. It was around 2 a.m. Suddenly, Airman Dale Hogan felt sluggish, like everything around him was slowing down. He was confused when the hair on his arms rose straight up. He saw that Airman George's hair on his head was also sticking straight up. Here now is former U.S. Air Force Airman First Class Dale Hogan, who describes what happened over the next several hours at Whiteman Air Force Base, Missouri, in the fall of 1984. And I said, George, is this Jeep magnetized? It was a cool night. I think it was towards the end of summer. And George is looking at me and he's going, well, all your hair is sticking up. <laughs> and I kept touching the Jeep and getting a little, like a little spark off my fingers. And I'm going, now that's interesting. What's causing this? It was a very clear night. There were no clouds. Anyways, I get out of the Jeep and I'm looking around. And I see on top of 4018, I see this bluish red pencil light right center of the igloo and i started yelling at george to come out of the jeep and look at this do you mean something that looked like a laser coming from the sky down into the igloo straight down they said george there's a light on the igloo george said no it's nothing and i said george get out of the damn jeep come over here and look it's coming from the center of the igloo and it's going straight up but it only goes up so high, and then it stops. And I said, George, there's something there. And I'm going, George, what is the flight restriction? Because I'm looking up, and I could see this black disc. Protocol being protocol, I tried to get a hold of Alpha 1 and Security 1. My radio kept breaking up. I got told to switch to go to a different channel, which I did. Again, the radio kept breaking up, and I couldn't get them to come to my location where George and I George was, in the meantime, telling me to get off the igloo, because now I had climbed up onto the igloo, looking at this bluish-red light that was coming straight down. And it started to do a grid pattern. And I was like, this is not happening. Just like a grid, it went to one corner and then started going about every three inches, back and forth, and was doing a grid. And when it got to me, it actually stopped, because I put my hand into it. George was telling me not to do this. And I said, George, I have to know. Well, when I put my hand into the beam of light, it changed color real quick to like a purple. And my hand was like numb. Like pins and needles, like if you had sat on your hand or fell asleep wrong and you lose the blood flow to your arm. Right. That's how my whole hand felt. Just pins and needles. Did the light resume the grid pattern after you interacted with your hand? As my hand got out of the way, it went back to the bluish red light, and no longer the purple, and it was no bigger than a pencil, and started to do the grid pattern. Back and forth, back and forth. And then it went up and started going longitude, back and forth, back and forth. This is on one of the igloos. Did it on three of them. It went to one igloo, it went to the next one to beam a light, went to the next one to beam a light, went to the next one. It kept shooting this beam of light down into the igloo. There was at least 24 igloos. So this is a pretty good-sized complex. But only two of them had nuclear warheads, and the third one had regular munitions, grenades, dynamite, rockets, things like that, regular munitions, ammo. That's all that was in there. And it did like a partial grid pattern on that one. 
but it did a complete full grid pattern on the two igloos that the one I was on top of and the one that was beside me. That's the two that carried the warheads. There was absolutely no noise coming from this thing. I said, well, I got to ask the stupid question. Is this an exercise going on? And they said, negative, Alpha 4 Bravo. There was no exercise in progress. I said, well, do you have anything on radar then? Can you get a hold of the tower and ask them if they see anything on radar? And they said, what is going on, Alpha 4 Bravo? And I said, well, you have a UFO roughly 50 feet in diameter, 55 feet to 100 feet over my head. And I'm looking straight at it, and it's the black of Ace of Spades. And it's snipping the igloos. They told me to stand by, and then all of a sudden, all the area lighting went off. And when the area lighting went off, it made that black disc extremely visible against the black sky night. It was in full view. That's when my supervisor, who was Michael Garcia, Michael James Garcia, he was a staff sergeant. Michael Garcia pulls up, and I show him, and I point up to it. And he's going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I wish I had a camera. This is the real McCoy. So we're looking at this disc just hovering there, doing this grid pattern across the igloos. That's when we started hearing the jump jets fire up out there on the tarmac. And within 10 minutes, they come up and they head over towards the igloo and off the UFO goes like there was nothing. Mm -hmm. Stopped on a dime. And the Harriers could not turn and keep up with it. And apparently the UFO dragged them way off in the distance and then shot right back to where we were because this lasted for almost two and a half, three hours, this whole event. And the UFO came back to continue doing the grid pattern search. The weapon storage facility was shaped like a dog bone. So you had basically a half square mile bottom end of the dog bone and again at the top, and you had a little over a quarter mile distance between the two. That was maybe just a single road. So in order for them to get to our location, they had to go through another security check. So you just don't go inside a weapons facility and go wherever you want. Well, one thing that we noticed was this car flying around the perimeter road. And all of a sudden, I looked down, and you see the two gates to the weapons storage facility open up. And I'm like, what are they doing? You don't open up two gates to a facility with a car doing over 100 miles an hour around the corner. And then we saw a second vehicle following the first vehicle, but not going quite as fast. So the first car just blew right through the security, through both gates, didn't even stop, and came straight to my location where George and I were, jumped out of the vehicle, came over to us. Now here comes the second vehicle. While this officer is talking to us, the second vehicle is coming up, and now you see it's pulling a trailer. So the second vehicle comes up through the facility and never stops for nobody. I mean, it was given a green light clean through. Again, this is breaking nuclear protocol. Mm -hmm. So in they come. The first guy, the officer's over. I couldn't tell if he was a major or a lieutenant colonel because of the subdued uniform. All I could see was the clover leaf. This officer asked me what this UFO, where it was at, and where, you know, what was going on. So I told him, I said, it's right there. By this point, it was back over the munitions facility, where they kept the regular munitions, grenades and all that stuff. And he says, I don't see it. I said, it's right there. <laughs> so I said, look, sir. I said, look down the barrel of my M16. So I pointed at it. And that is when he 
see the thing, and his jaw just dropped open and said, holy shit. And I asked him, because I had already locked and loaded my weapon. I slammed a 203 round into my weapon, because that's what I was carrying that night was the M203 and the M16. And I was locked and loaded. And I said, sir, permission to fire. I said, it has been probing these eagles. And he said, son, you will not fire on that UFO. They have more firepower than you can ever shake a stick at. He'll blow you and I to smithereens. <laughs> so you hold. And I said, sir, I already put rounds in my weapon because I am that damn scared. And he said, point it at the ground and remove that ammo. And now why do I think that is strange? It's because this officer told me they had more firepower than I would ever know. I didn't know anything about what they call UFO officers on military installations. Right. That's what his job was. And he knew a lot more about whatever it was than you guys did. Yes, because when he said that, I knew he knew a lot more than I did. What happens next? I had to point my weapon down, remove the, the M16 round from the bolt, and then pulled the M203 round out of the chamber and put it back into my pouch. And then uh, put the M16 round, I put that back into the clip. The officer told me to stand fast. And he went over to the second vehicle that pulled in with this trailer. And they popped down the sides, and they mount this camera onto a tripod. So they were pulling a trailer that was equipped and ready to go for a pull-mount camera. And the lens was between 8 to 10 inches round. So this was a huge, big, fat lens. And the officer then pointed to the two crewmen up towards where the UFO was. And they now were filming it. And then the, here come the jump jets, come flying overhead, and the UFO takes off again. But it's not over. Because once the jump jets get clear across on the other side of base, God knows where it took them to. Here it comes on back. Now it's overhead. Back over the 2000, 4020 igloo again, doing another grid pattern on the thing. It made a thorough and complete grid pattern on the 4018 and 4020. And is the lieutenant colonel or major watching all of this? Oh, yeah, he's watching it. And then he had the audacity to order Staff Sergeant Michael Garcia back to his location. And so he leaves. He then looks at me and orders George and I to go back to our location. And I said, sir, this is my location. This is our location. And then he said, I'm ordering you to stop watching the UFO. And I said, not to watch it no more. I said, sir, what do you want me to do? He goes, I want you to look at the ground. That's what I want you to do. So we walked over behind 4018, where the lieutenant colonel could no longer see us, and we continued to watch. Now, meantime, my hand is hurting like hell. And I'm looking at George, and I'm going, George, I don't know what that light did, but it really messed up my hand. I can't feel it. It's numb. It feels like pins and needles, and it got that stinging sensation going on through your blood flow trying to come back to your hand right. after you've been on it for a while. And George is going, I tried to tell you not to put your hand in it. And then the jump jets apparently ran out of fuel because now they're forced to all go over it and land. So the UFO did its thing, checked out a few more beam of light, shoot it down into each igloo, and then it was gone. It's around 4, 4.30 in the morning. I'm not really sure of the time because George's watch did stop. Where is the lieutenant colonel or major? For about an hour, they were over at the entrance just filming everything, just filming UFO coming and going, doing its grid pattern. 
heard the major yell, make sure that you got plenty of film and make sure that that film is good. Make sure you get good shots. And I heard them reply, yes, sir, plenty of film and we're getting great shots. Because they had an infrared lens, they could see everything. Did you know for a fact that the camera that they brought in to do the filming was operating in infrared? I have no idea. All I remember seeing was a bunch of little red lights on the thing and that huge, big, fat lens on the front. It wasn't a normal lens. That's what I remember about it. Did you ever hear rumors about where the film went? Nothing. So around towards the end of this, the UFO, which was now over our head, about a thousand feet over our heads, turned to a bright, silverish, white light. And that thing shot straight up. <laughs> I want to say at least 20,000 miles an hour. And it just shot straight up and went. And when it got up to where it was almost nothing, it shot off to a 90-degree angle, just as fast as it was going straight up, and then just disappeared. The officer and the film crew at that point left. The vehicles weren't checked. They weren't inspected. Gates were opened up, and they were gone. That's a violation of a nuclear protocol. Around 6.30 in the morning, because it was getting light outside, and this airplane came in for a landing. But what was strange about this airplane coming in, and that's what I told George, we're screwed. The airplane landed with no tail numbers, but it was light enough to see that there was no Air Force insignia, there was no tail numbers, there was nothing when this airplane landed. And once it touched the ground, it turned off its lights. The airplane taxied along the runway with no running lights on. Once it landed on the ground, it turned them all off. About 7.15, this bus pulls up in front of the weapon storage facility. And there were all these guys standing around. There were four of them. And these four had suits on. They were gray suits. The only thing that was black about them were those cheap black sunglasses. So they came over, and they said, where are my four? And the one guy came over and pointed at George, myself, Sergeant Garcia, and Chewy. And he said, you four, front of the lines. And then we marched. We were then ordered onto the bus, no talking, not to say a word, mouth shut, eyes forward, eyes front, get on the bus. We travel around, and they take us down the runway. And we're going, this is strange. We're taking a drive down the runway. So they took the bus, not to the bayside. They took us straight down to the runway. Our weapons were told they would be turned in by somebody else. And so we go all the way down to this abandoned, what was used for the B-47s and later the B-52 alert facilities. George, where he sat, he was the first one to go in. So this is now, I want to say, 8.30, 9 o'clock that morning. So George goes inside the building, inside this room. You could hear them yelling and screaming and hollering. But it was mumbled hollering, so you really couldn't make out exactly word for word. And they just yelled at him and yelled at him. And finally, about an hour later, George comes out. And I didn't understand what he was whispering. And later I realized what he was whispering. Heat lightning, heat lightning. And then they were yelling at George to shut his mouth. Now, we had four guys, these UFO guys, inside that room. And he had one guy up on the stage. You had one guy standing on each side of the aisles. Guys in gray suits with black, cheap sunglasses. So, Dale, whoever these intel guys are, they are bringing all of the major eyewitnesses of this UFO event into this building, and they're doing a debriefing, but the debriefing is to order everyone to keep their mouths shut, right? Oh, yes. 
So when it became my turn to go in, because I was now next, I go in there. They had one guy in front of me, and they had one guy sitting to my right in a chair, and they had one guy behind me. The first guy begins to talk to me. says, okay, from the top, tell me what you saw, what happened. So basically everything I told you, that's what I told him. And he goes, what I want you to do is from the top. I want you to tell me again. So again, I told him everything. And, and then he said, okay, again from the beginning. And that's when I looked at him and I said, sir, what can I possibly tell you for a third time that I haven't already told you for the first two times? You want me to say heat lightning? He said, is that what you saw? And I said, no, sir, I didn't see heat lightning. And then they all started yelling at me. And they all four of them pounced. The guy from the chair, the guy from the window, the guy in front of me, all started yelling at me. And they got in my face telling me I didn't see nothing. And I'm going, but I did. I did see something. And they were just yelling at me. And that's when I realized why they were yelling at George. Because they recorded everything that I had said and then wanted to make us believe we didn't see what we saw. Right. That's when I looked at them and I said, I saw heat lightning, for God's sake. I was in tears. Yeah. And, that, and that's how bad they scared me. And then one of them said, you saw heat lightning. I said, yes, sir, I saw heat lightning. And then they all went back. The guy went back to the window. The guy with the clipboard looked down. He sat down. The guy behind me backed away from me. They were all happy now. I said I saw heat lightning. Then the guy that was in front of me doing the interrogation hands me a piece of paper and says, I want you to sign here. And I said, can I read what I'm signing, sir? He said, no, you cannot. You will sign it. Well, I read at the very top of the page, National Disclosure Secrecy Act. Non-disclosure secrecy. Something to those words and those effects. In the middle of the paragraph, I saw where it said, if I disclosed what I saw, I would be or have been and was under psychiatric care at the time of the incident. And I looked at them and I said, how the hell can I be under psychiatric care? And your assignment was to oversee the security of that WSA that had nuclear weapons stored in it. Right. So if I was seeing a psychiatrist at that time, I would not be allowed to carry a weapon. And they yelled at me, and then once I had signed it, they said, Airman Hogan, bullets are cheap. People die all the time. They commit suicide on a regular basis. If you ever disclose what happened this night... You will not like the future. Then he said, and family members die all the time. Horrible deaths. Houses and trailers burn down. People die in car crashes all the time. So for your family's sake, I wouldn't disclose what happened tonight. And I was very angry, very scared, and upset that they threatened my family over that whole incident. Right. You were warned the bullets were cheap and you were threatened and they threatened your family. Why are you speaking to me on June 9th, 2010? I'm not scared anymore. The people need to know the truth. They need to know that we are not alone, that the government has been hiding UFOs. Well, there are a lot of you from RAF Bentwaters to your experience and so many other experiences where Military people have reached that place where they are angry and disgusted that the government of the United States has ordered them to lie and that the government is lying and that the military establishment is lying about the fact that we're not alone in the universe. 
with all of this anger and rebellion from all of these people. I guess angry because they're making everybody look like we're insane. We're crazy people. I get angry about that, too. Just people need to know the truth. Why do you think that the government of the United States and England and others are still insisting on a policy of denial about one or more other intelligences interacting with this planet? They don't want people to know the truth, I guess. They're afraid of something. At least 30 soldiers were involved that night at Whiteman Air Force Base, including the Harrier jump jet pilots. Afterward, Dale Hogan was told by one of the security officers that, quote, something really fouled up the nuclear warheads in the 4018 and 4020 igloos, close quote. After Airman Dale Hogan was honorably discharged from the U.S. Air Force on February 21, 1990, he went to work in construction. He never said a word to anyone about the dramatic events at Whiteman Air Force Base until 2008, when he sent some of his experience to the Disclosure Project and UFOs Northwest. Dale told me he has never done a recorded interview until now on this Earth Files report. If any other military personnel stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base in September to October 1984 have firsthand knowledge about the large disk that interacted by light beam with the nuclear weapons storage igloos, please contact me. My email is earthfiles at earthfiles.com. All requests for confidentiality are honored. What is important is learning the facts about non-human interactions with American and other military around the world. Thanks for listening to this Earth Files podcast from the edges of science, environment, and real X-Files. Go to www.earthfiles.com to see more than a thousand Earth Files reports with photographs, drawings, and documents. And visit Earth Files every day, every week, for new reports and new podcasts. That's www.earthfiles.com. Earth Files.